welcome back to the Business of Fitness podcast with me, Molly Herford. And today I am so excited to talk to my friend, Ellie Blue. She is the co-owner and vice president of Microcosm Publishing. She's an author, she is a zine maker, she is an anthology maker, and we are really going deep on publishing today. So what I love about Ellie is Microcosm is sort of this like middle ground between a huge publisher, but also it's not like a little micro publisher like what I'm doing with Strong Girl Publishing. So we really can get into kind of the nuances of what the deal with publishing is. If you're someone who, if you listen to that first episode, one of our first episodes back last August with Celine Yeager, where we were talking about writing a book, uh, if you're someone who's ever thought about writing a book, this is the episode to listen to for the very practical applications of what does it actually look like to write and publish a book? Uh, what are your options these days? What do we think are the best options? Uh, I mean, big shocker here, it depends, but we do go through sort of the ups and downs of any everything from self-publishing to going with a more traditional publisher. So I'm so, so excited for this episode. So great of Ellie to share so much wisdom. She's been in this space for a couple decades now. She and I go way, way, way back. Uh, and I absolutely just loved this chat. So if you have any interest in writing a book, you've been thinking about it, you're, you know, even contemplating it as like a thing you'd like to do someday, definitely enjoy the rest of this episode. So here we are. Here is Ellie Blue of Microcosm Publishing. Oh my gosh, Ellie, I'm so excited to have you on the Business of Fitness podcast. I mean, I feel like we've operated in the same sphere for so long without ever actually, now that I'm thinking about it, meeting in this might be the first time I've ever seen you even though we've been connected for a billion years yeah I don't think we've ever spoken or met before just emails and adjacency yeah but I feel like I know you so well because of that and well and now you have a podcast as well that I've been listening to and you've been so involved in the bike and book space which is where I I live so yeah I'm so excited to have you on the show it's a great combination and thanks for having me here. Yeah, I love talking about my two favorite things. Exactly, exactly. Um, okay, so the way your writing is described is, quote, feminist science fiction about dot, 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 bicycles. Um, <laughs> like how, how did that come about? That is the nichest of niches. Oh man, well, I don't know if I should tell you the long version or the short version. I'll try for the medium version. I was gonna say medium version. Yeah, so I was writing... Um, I guess I would now call it nonfiction, but that's like a book term. I was I was like a blogger and a reporter writing about bicycling issues. Um, and I guess when I say reporter, I was very untrained and very editorial, but I had a lot to say. Oh, um, I mean, that's me now. And I've been doing it for 20 years. It's fine. I know, right? You, you got you got to you got to put your opinion in there. So, you know, part of getting involved in writing about bikes meant I was encountering a lot of sexism. Um, like more than in any time in my life before or since. And so I started to write about that. And I guess feminism became, feminism and bicycling kind of became this sort of joint interest of mine. Like, where do these two things meet? And I started um, also getting a little burnt out on always writing for an online audience. You know, I love like writing something and then getting immediate feedback and like having it out in the comments. I lived that way. I lived that battle for many years. But um, I started to feel a little burnt out and my partner is a print publisher and was like, you could, you know, you could publish things in print. And I had published zines as a teenager, you know, a circulation of like five to 20 copies. Um, oh, we have that in common. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Yes. So I like dusted off that skill set. I didn't go for the typewriter and the scissors and the glue stick this time. Okay. So I was student teaching seventh graders and I brought in a typewriter and had them make a class zine. They were like blown away by the typewriter. There's just something so viscerally amazing about like you type it and there's words on a paper. And it's so awesome to see like young people now getting more into zines because like you really can um, disclose more safely, I think, in a zine on a printed page where you kind of control the circulation than you can in any other aspect of life. And I think growing up online really probably makes that even more appealing than it was to us in the 90s. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, self-publishing and we'll kind of get down this road in a second here, but like that's it's made it so much more possible for like anyone to have that again. Like, I mean, geez, I'm sure you had the same thing when I was doing zines, like fact sheet five 
was where you yes. found the list of other zines and then you're like totally. writing to the PO boxes and uh-uh. like, uh-uh. oh my God, I've never felt so cool as I did when I was 17 and had my own PO box. Damn. Oh my God. Okay. So zines, you, you know, you're, you're thinking about this writing thing, space, science fiction. Oh uh, yeah. So I started publishing this zine called taking the lane and, um, I just published one. I like wrote this big impassioned essay and I was like, I'll make it a zine. And I funded it on Kickstarter. I was so shocked when I raised $250 that I needed to print my zine. (laughs) And like a friend of my partners designed it. And um, I I got a small offset print run from a small print shop. And I started, I never thought about doing it again. I think I put volume one on sort of as a whim at the last minute. And then people started sending me submissions for volume two before I had even started to think about it. So that was how it began. And then after the second volume, I was like, oh, I could have a theme for each issue. And then by the time I got to the 10th volume, I was kind of running out of obvious easy themes. And I was like, thinking about my love of teenage zines. I also loved science fiction and fantasy as a teenager. And I was like, I want to recapture that. So I put out a call for submission for feminist bicycle science fiction. And I got, I got, I got submissions. I was so surprised. Um, Amazing. I didn't even write, I didn't write a story for that one. I was just like too blown away by people responding to it. And yeah, so I published it. I I got got some amazing artwork, art for the cover by Katura Reynolds of, um, a woman in space blasting either she's shooting at space sharks with little space bubble helmets or she's maybe giving them covering fire for their retreat it's hard to tell um yeah I don't know I just was so into that I was like I want to keep doing this and now I'm on volume I'm working on volume 10 of this bikes in space series right now I stopped publishing the zine ages ago but um uh, yeah volume 10 and there's a novel too wild that's amazing I love it Okay, I mean that leads to this this question I sent you, which is just in publishing, how niche is too niche, or is that even possible? Well, it's probably possible, but I haven't found the limit yet. Like you know, after the first, there's a theme here, I guess. After the first two bikes in space, there's a zine, and then I made the second one a book, and then I was like, oh, I should have a sub theme. So the third one it was feminist bicycling science fiction about zombies. And the response to that was so much bigger than to the first two that I was like, oh, going very niche is a good idea. Okay. So like niching even one more actually like, so it it almost like finds your target audience in some ways. It does. I think that it like, I mean, it definitely gets cooler stories out of people as well. Like I think the limitations to the prompt is really, is, is really helpful for writers and for the audience. I think like, even if somebody isn't like, those are my exact things, they're like, I have to see a slice of this worldview. You know Mm. what I mean? And like, I think that's the power of the niche is that like, if you do it right, you're not just talking to like the five people who like, this is their lived experience. You're talking to the like hundreds of people who wouldn't have looked twice at your book if you were trying to appeal to everybody and be very generic because there's a lot of books trying to do that. But if they see you doing something really distinctive, that's interesting. And there's mm-hmm. yeah, something interesting. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to go for like a Twilight vibe for the next. Ooh, vampires. I haven't gone that route. I don't know. I don't know. Are vampires over? I don't even know what the new cool thing is. I guess I'm just not that into vampires. So I don't know. We did one on witchcraft was the last one. And then this one, I've got actually two volumes coming out with the theme of books, basically in books which obviously we love. Yeah. I know I got so many submissions that were so good that I was like, I can't just publish 10 of these. So I chose 25 and cut it into two volumes. Um, We'll see how that goes. Like, it's so wild. Even just like, this is going to sound weird, but like even getting those submissions, I think is like just so amazing, especially because like I'm trying to do sort of similar now with an anthology for strong girl publishing. And I'll tell you, like, kind of the first, like, this first, like, push to get submissions is definitely, like, difficult. So you've really done something amazing in that, like, you can keep putting these things out and people are still writing in submissions. Like, how cool is that? It's super cool. I wonder, yeah, how do you, like, get the word out about yours? Because I've definitely found there's a line between, like, getting the word out enough and getting it out too much, where I just get a lot of submissions that aren't really appropriate for the publication. 
Yeah. And that's, I, I'd say I'm starting to kind of see that trickle in where I'm like, okay, where are the, the submissions that I want? Um, yeah. <laughs> in my case with this, this first one is really more just me reaching out to athletes that I know or know someone who knows someone kind of things. Um, totally. So I'm really like very specifically targeting the people that I want to be in it. Um, I always have the best results when I do that. And I don't always get it together to do that. But I try at least every issue to like send out five or six emails to people who have written on these themes, whose writing I like. And yeah. 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 And they often do. They often submit something. Exactly. That's the thing. It turns out if you build it, they do come. So, Mm -hmm. and you know, for me, it's also trying to figure out like, okay, what's, what's a way that I can make it easier because what I'm trying to do is get, you know, uh, like for like former or recently retired or like currently professional athletes to be sharing like what they wish they knew. So mm-hmm. originally I was like, oh, like, you know, essays and, you know, it can be a poem. It can be this, it can be this. And I realized like, okay, how do I make it easier? And it's like, okay, we can, you and I can talk about it and then I'll write it up and then, you know, you can like approve it, but that's, that's how we'll do it because not everyone wants to write, but all of these women have these amazing like points to get across. So. Totally, totally. And I love publishing like new authors or authors without a ton of experience. Like I feel, I do feel some relief every volume when I get more and more sort of like very polished submissions that are ready to go and I don't need to spend a lot of back and forth, but I always try to accept some submissions where I know it needs a lot of editorial work, but I'm just like really excited about the author's idea or they like had a mm-hmm. spin on it. Like they had an idea that nobody else had. Um, and that's like the most satisfying part, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. It's been very interesting, like kind of shifting. And I refuse to say that I'm shifting into being an editor versus a writer. I will always be a writer first, but definitely the, the editor side is very weird. Um, Uh Uh I always said I'm not an editor, so that's, it's been tricky. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. I mean, it sounds like you have been editing. I don't know if it's part of your identity, but it does seem like a job. It's true. It's true. Yeah, it's kind of an accidental thing where I'm like, no, I'm a writer. Stop making me edit things. And then I'm like, oh, no, I'm the one making me edit things. Oh, crap. Worst boss you, ever. It gives you like kind of a weird power dynamic, doesn't it? That maybe you're not prepared for. Yeah, 100%. The And you and I emailed about this, like the leadership thing is just a whole other level of weird when you've started out as being a you know reporter who likes writing and suddenly you're you're like trying to put together a team and dealing with that and we'll definitely yeah. have to get into that but um okay so all of this leads to you run EBP which is a micro publishing house that's an imprint of microcosm and we have to talk about what microcosm is because i mean it's so funny because before i ever met you i ordered one of the slingshot like planners back in 2002 probably and just felt like the coolest freaking person in the entire universe having that so that's my experience with microcosm I mean I think that is what the slingshot does it like bestows coolness upon you yeah Yeah. so microcosm was founded in the 90s by a teenager who loved zines jovial and um who still runs it today 27 years later it went from being like several milk crates in Joe's bedroom closet in Ohio to like a staff of, you know, more than 30 people spread across the world, um, you know, selling millions of books every year. I don't know what happened. Wild. Um, but yeah, I was publishing these little zines, um, having a great time, also trying to figure out how to make a living. I was kind of cobbling together like freelance writing and speaking and publishing and none of it was quite like adding up like all the pieces weren't really yeah they weren't really coming together into like one person paying their bills and eating every month so um like I scraped by every month somehow but I finally um so Joe and I are also life partners and I was over breakfast one day I was feeling kind of disheartened I was like Joe you should buy my company and hire me to run it <laughs> and microcosm was not like at its peak um of financial success at that time so the deal that we made together was like you know pretty pretty DIY like not not exactly the lucrative financial merger you hear about with like Penguin Random House and Simon and Schuster but it worked for both of us like I and so yeah and um at the beginning of 2015 I got a desk at the microcosm office and I started um working on editing and marketing books about punk music books about gardening books about you know fixing things um and 
it was very disorienting for me at first because I had lived and breathed bikes for so long. Um, and I, and it was also very humbling because as I was like sort of tending to my EBP imprint of feminist bicycle books, um, I was realizing that like, you know, at, at microcosm, which was a small press at the time, my books were very small potatoes, like in terms of sales, in terms of like what we could do to promote them. So that was, that was, that was definitely a bit of an ego blow, but also probably good for me. I, yeah, and I've learned so much um, since then. Now I've been um, with Microcosm for eight years and I run a lot of the day-to-day -day aspects of the whole company and I do still run my imprint. But um, yeah, I run EBP less as more of its own business and more sort of like a brand within Microcosm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. It's uh, like, honestly, at a time where, and I hear you talk about this in your podcast as well, in a time where publishing companies like Penguin Random House are struggling to, you know, break even, Microcosm is still doing like really well and, you know, making books happen, which is amazing, given that we are now living in a time where no one reads books. Um, <laughs> but that's not what our readers say. They yeah, exactly. Exactly. More than ever. <laughs> but yeah. I do think that it is like, you know, I can't even imagine what it's like to run I'm starting to imagine what it's like to run a company that might have 50 or 100 employees you know we might be there in the next few years yeah I can't even imagine what it would be like to run or even work for one of those huge the big four I guess they're the big four now yeah. I like it must just be so hard to just like do anything much less connect to readers and like much less connect to books in the way that everybody who's there probably really cares about I just imagine yeah. it being really disheartening, you know? Yeah. And I'd say that was my experience with anyone I like talked to and worked with on like the couple books I've had that have come out with those imprints is like, it's, yeah, like everybody's struggling, everybody's overworked, everyone's getting moved around because like companies are getting bought and sold all the time. And you have like 10 different editors on one book. It just seems kind mm -hmm. of like a nightmare. I'm not going to lie. No, and I mean, there are like issues with working with a smaller publisher too. You know, I know we've had our fair share of frustrated authors and, but like it is, I feel like your book kind of has an even chance, like with a bigger company, like they're almost gambling with your book. Like they decide, yeah, they're throwing your book, throwing things at the wall, seeing what sticks. And then if something looks like it might be a little sticky, they'll throw all their resources at it and nothing at anything else. Exactly. Whereas for us, we like give every book pretty much equal you know yeah pretty much equal resources pretty much equal push like we and our staff has the ability and the freedom to like see what is valuable in each book and really like figure out what to do with it and who, yeah. who, how to get it to the people that need to read it yeah so that's, you know, I hope I we don't throw out of that yeah well I think that's that's a your core though that's like part of like the value I would say of microcosm and, you know, I wanted to ask about everyone, you know, everyone who says they want to write a book, what should they know? And I think you and I would both agree, like, the number one thing is that, like, you're going to be your biggest advocate and your biggest marketer if you're writing that book. Like, do not ever expect anyone else to, like, sell that book as well as you are going to be able to sell that book, which is it's very so unfortunate if you're, you know, a writer. Like, I'm sure you've had this too. You're like, oh, no, I need to market myself too? Come on. I I know. I, I wrote know. it. Isn't that enough? I put 80,000 words in here. Like, where's my money? And I mean, sometimes it does work that way. Like our best-selling author for many, many years was a very shy, kind, lovely young person who did not use the computer much, no social media, didn't really want to do events. And her book just, you know, it got picked up by a couple of blogs that really liked it. It was like this one mom blog that we had never heard of before. And it hmm. sold 100 120,000 copies and it's still selling. Wild. Right. You don't expect that to happen. If you're listening no. to this and you want to write a book, that's not happening. No. And I mean, so there is like, you know, I feel like there is some truth to it. Like if your book is really good and people find it, it will like those two things go well together, but like yeah. you kind of have to have both of those. And sometimes the people finding it is by chance and sometimes it's by your own efforts. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what else should people know if they want to write a book? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. I would say the biggest thing I would want people to know is that like the most successful books like serve a community of readers rather than serving the vision of the author. Ooh, I love that. 
so if you are connected to that community, like if you are the connected to the readers and you know what they need and what they want, then your book gives it to them. That is your recipe for success, depending on what success means to you. And I just, you know, I, we do try to kind of screen out authors that we're working with who want to write the book for, I guess, in reality TV, they would say for the wrong reasons. I mean, no reasons are wrong, but like some reasons are not going to be achieved very easily by a book. Like if somebody wants fame or money or artistic expression of a pure nature or to like prove yourself, um, a book is like one of the hardest things you can do to achieve all of those things. There's other easier ways to do that. Um, but if you want to like really connect about an area of passion and knowledge that you have and serve your community and serve your readership, a book is often a very good way to do that. So Ooh, yeah. keep that in mind. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> and I think that like, the point is that applies to fiction too. Like at first yeah. you hear that and you think it's like, oh, nonfiction, like, okay, I need to be writing a book that's useful to whoever. But no, like the same thing is a hundred percent true of fiction. Even if like on the surface, it doesn't really make sense because you're writing about cyclists in space but that is a strong committed community it is so true and I mean I think that like yeah like you if you think about like what readers want you know like they want a different version of the future they want like something more human they want something less sexist they want something with like more bikes and fewer rocket ships at least some people do and when they you know it's like tapping into the solar punk audience really so yeah, I would say it's honestly almost more true of fiction because so mm -hmm. much fiction is published and it's really hard. There's there's not really a convention in fiction publishing of like distinguishing your novel of like marketing your novel in a way that's reader oriented. I don't know. It's very strange. Like a lot of novels are marketed sort of like album covers where you kind of already have to know if it's for you or not. You can't tell from looking at the cover. That is true. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I hadn't really thought about that, but you're you're exactly right. Yeah, I if I wish a novel would just tell me on the cover what it is and what it's about and who it's for, and then I could choose. I would read so much more. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, okay, so you you're working as a publisher and an author, so because of that, I think you're uniquely suited to answer the question of like, what do publishers get wrong about authors and what do authors get wrong about publishers, especially in this like smaller setting? Because I think a lot of the people listening to this are really going to be thinking more towards either small publishers or self-publishing. Because I mean, I say this all the time to people that like, you know, I, I'm sure you get this email all the time. Like, I want to write a book. And you're like, great. Um, <laughs> they're like, where's my contract? And you're like, oh, doesn't really work that way. Sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I keep so trying to explain. I'm like the like the big you know the big four again like those contracts are so few and far between and yeah. even if you get one the chance of success very low the chance of getting like decent advance very 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 low yeah. um you know the chance of really ever seeing any return on that like honestly pretty low so while i think there's still value in the big four don't get me wrong if they come to me and say here's a hundred thousand dollars please write us a book i'll be like here you go here's a book but um, I think, you know, the the small publishers and the self-publishing and, you know, the the sort of middle middle publishers, I think that's where you can actually do a lot more with the book. Because I found when my books were coming out with the big ones, I was actually so limited by what I could do because they're bigger publishers. Like, it's much harder to do kind of the more grassrootsy marketing stuff because you're like, they're like, oh, you can't actually use your own, like, images from the book those belong to that like that that type that type mm. belong to somebody so you can't use your own logo anymore and you're like but but I can't market my own what oh no <laughs> oh man <laughs> yeah there's I think um communication the relationship between author and publisher is so like it's one of the most fascinating parts of the job for me because I, I feel like to kind of answer both parts of this question at once like I feel like the biggest misconception that publishers have is all authors are the same and that authors have is all publishers are the same mm. and like in fact like every publisher is different and you know when you're thinking about your book as something that serves your community of readers you want to think about which publisher is going to be best suited to work with you to connect that book to those readers and we all are different you know like if somebody had the coolest poetry book ever that like 
we were so politically aligned with, we would not be able to sell a hundred copies because we don't have any way, any knowledge of the poetry market. Um, so, you know, I always advise authors to like look for the publishers that are publishing books like yours successfully mm-hmm. and like successful in the way that that means to you and like work with them or try to work with them and they'll probably yeah. be excited to work with you if you're aligned. And then like for um, authors, like authors are so different from each other. And yeah, it's fascinating to me. I Now I have, um, after many years of misconceptions and hurt feelings and misunderstandings and miscommunications, I have like a onboarding face-to-face meeting with every author that we acquire and we sign a contract with. And just ask them a lot of questions about like, how do you work and what do you expect in terms of communication? And here's what we expect. And that helps a lot. Um, Yeah. I also have kind of a list of like most frequent misconceptions. Like, no, you don't actually have to pay us to publish your book. That's not how this works. It's so, it's so like upsetting to me that that's so a common misconception. (laughs) Like, (laughs) cause I've actually had the same thing with the anthology. I had a couple of people, like, even though it says like, you know top submissions will actually get paid I've had people emailing me like but like do I have to pay to be in it and I'm like no that is not the point here oh no which is just like this upsetting thing that like a bad rap that like small publishers have gotten because of a few publishing companies or many many the the vanity publishing companies if you will and I love um in in the book a people's guide to publishing which by the way fantastic resource like, holy moly, is that, like, the best resource? Um, it's I, really good. So good. The Like, there is, like, a big discussion about that. So I think even if you're a writer, that's actually a really good book to read mm-hmm. because I think it gives you a ton of insight into the publishing process. And, like, I think it gives you more respect for it and it gives you a better sense of, like, what you're getting into and, like, you know, knowing what some of the language means. Totally. Yeah. And like what you can expect a publisher to do mm-hmm. and not like, what are the red flags that you should run away from? Mm-hmm. And yeah. Now you kind of, uh, you kind of pointed this out with the, like looking for a publisher that's doing books that are similar to yours. I think there's a lot of authors that would maybe have the misconception that if a publisher is doing books that are similar to theirs, that's actually a bad thing because it means oh. there's no room in the market. So can you speak to, can you speak to that? Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking that. No, I mean, it's like, if we can go to a store and we can be like, Hey, look, we have one book about bicycling. That store might be like, sure, I'll try a copy. Or they might be like, what's your order minimum? A hundred dollars. I don't know. I'm, you know, that's the only book I want and I'm not going to buy like 12 copies. Forget it. But if, so if I can go to a store with like 10 books about bicycling, then they can be like, oh, I only want these six and I'll get like five copies of each, you know, and it Mm -hmm. just makes it easier on a business, from a business perspective, easier from a marketing perspective. Like if we publish more books about bicycling, then readers who are interested in that topic will come to us and they might also discover our other books on other topics, but they'll keep coming back for the bicycling, which they do. Thank you, readers. (laughs) And um, also that like helps us attract more authors that write, want to write about that topic. It's like a beautiful cycle. So, you know, mm-hmm. there are definitely like some logistical things. Like we don't want to have two really, really similar books coming out within the same six months as each other. We made that mistake recently. Oh, this is so, you'll appreciate this story, Molly. Um, we published a book called Punk Woman and a book called Riot Woman. I mean, and I love it. Love it so much. Love that that's a thing totally different books one of them was like you know this sort of overview of women in punk over the years kind of encyclopedic and the other one was like this very like personal uh reporting on sort of like and like cultural commentary on the riot girl movement and the zine movement and sort of like early 2000s counterculture um that the author lived and was an organizer through and both of them had like pink elements on the cover like we love pink we don't we put we put pink on a lot of books not just uh books about women but the books came out four months apart and we didn't think anything of it we were like these are two completely different books right. but apparently punk woman came out first a bunch of stores ordered it and then they were like oh we don't need another book about women in punk so they passed on riot women oh that's so upsetting so or they what... thought it was the same book they were and, and right. yeah so like you know we didn't anticipate that level of 
you know, sexism in the industry, to be honest, but also yeah, like right? we that lesson too. Like we were like, oh shit, we need to keep an eye on that. Yeah. So now with that, would you, will you just kind of stay the course or will you sort of reintroduce it with like a new cover or like, how, that how does great, that work? That is a great question. Um, This was pretty recently. So we're still sort of like, this was, I think they came out about a year ago. And so we're still just sort of like figuring out what the fallout was. Um, We have done that before where we've like given a book, a new title and a new cover and just mm-hmm. literally there's a printer down the street from us in Portland that will literally tear the old cover off and put the new one on. And we can, you know, we've definitely brought books back from the depths of the warehouse that way. Um, But yeah, we're, you know, kind of, you know, most of our, most books do have the biggest sales in their first few months, like even Mm -hmm. before they're published, but we try to acquire things that will be more evergreen and kind of be more steady sellers. So even if a book misses that first sales bump, like we can, we know we can still sell a certain number of copies a year eventually mm-hmm. because people will still be interested in these movements. Yeah, yeah. So this is like a really interesting thing. And you talked about this on your podcast maybe a month or two ago. It's funny. There's like a weird zeitgeist that happens in publishing that like is inexplicable. So you talked about um, the the book, what is it? Muscle, uh, Muscle on Wheels or something. Muscles on Wheels. Blanking on the name. Um all about Louise Armando. And you also have a book about Louise Armando. They came out sort of similar time. And at the time, and mine hasn't come out yet, I was writing a middle grade novel inspired by Louise Armando. Amazing. Like while those books were like in process and I didn't know about them. Like, what is it? Like, how does that stuff happen? Because Louise Armando is an 1870s cyclist from Montreal (laughs) who has like very little like information about her it makes no sense that this would be like on any of our minds yet somehow Mm -hmm. three books just happened to come out sort of about this that's I yeah I don't know the um I don't know why my friend April Streeter wrote I think she was maybe on the podcast talking about her book about yes, it, which that's it. I don't think has come out yet. I think she's still sort of like figuring out what to do with it. So if you know anyone who wants to publish it, she might be interested in talking to you. Um, it's for us. We're like fiction. We love fiction. We can't sell it. Um, but I mean, my guess, okay, this is just me like talking, but I would say feminism and bicycling are a very hot topic over the last 10 years or so. And there also is a resurgence in like um, inspirational biographies, like mm. people from the past, like especially short portraits, you know, those books where it's like a picture of an inspiring person and like one page about them. But also, yeah, like there's there's definitely people are trying to find sort of, I think, heroes that match their identity from the past that maybe weren't in the history books before now. So that's my guess. But also Louise Armando, what a character. Oh my gosh. Write about her, read about her. Right. Is your project, is your project um, coming along or? Yeah. Yeah. So it's called The Strong Girl and it'll actually, we'll put it out with Strong Girl Publishing in the fall as one of our our first books. So I'm very excited about that. Get that Um, one for your kids, everybody. Yeah. It's going to be a good one. It was, yeah. I'm like, it's about her as like a, like 12 year old, like like when she ran away from home to join the circus kind of vibes. Uh, Love it not not like when it got kind of dark towards the end there got it (laughs) (laughs) um okay on this note biggest mistakes that you see first time authors make um well like you just took a big deep breath there like (sighs) i know i think that there are so many sharks in the water like they're like amazon did a really good job of sort of spreading the promise of publishing like everybody has the idea that everybody has a book in them you can be a published author it's easy and then of course people buy into that it's a great dream and then as you start to try to execute that dream you quickly find out it's not actually easy and this whole infrastructure of author services companies and sort of disreputable publishers has been built up and I would include Amazon in that category of author services like they you're not self-published when you're on Amazon, you're published by Amazon and they are not a publisher that has your back and is on your side. Like they're, they're there to get money from you at every step of the way. 
Um, and so, yeah, like it's just become this sort of pay to play carnival. And I do think that, you know, no, no amount of spending money is going to substitute, going to be a substitute for like being able to authentically connect with your readers and your audience and understanding your market, you know, like yeah. you're better off like copying, pasting and stapling a zine in your bedroom than you are creating like what they call a book shaped object uh, using sort of print on demand services you can find online. Like, um, yeah, they, I would say spending money to, pu- to publish your work and promote your work. There's a lot of opportunities to do that. And it is really hard, I think, for somebody to navigate and they're preying on your dreams. Mm-hmm. Like, ugh. yeah, no, for sure. And I think so to that end, I guess, like at what point in the process, <clears throat> if ever, should an author be spending any money on their book? Um, I mean, it kind of depends. Like, I think if you're entrepreneurial, then maybe that's an investment you want to make. Like, but that is like, but I would say like, if you are spending money on your book, then consider that you are probably the publisher of your book. If you're spending money on kind of core things that need to happen to make your book exist, like printing or editorial or publicity or marketing or, um, you know, title development, cover design. If you're buying those things, you're the publisher mm-hmm. and you should be treating that as a business decision. And you should be ideally be aware of like what will happen to earn that money back in the future. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, this isn't necessarily true for all authors. Like there are people that are like, I just want to, you know, I'm 89 years old. I want to write my memoirs. So my family each has a copy and like for this purpose, like paying a little bit of money to somebody responsible who will help you like you know get that into a format that your grandkids will read and like produce 20 copies is probably a good investment but if like your goal is to reach a wider audience then um you should not be spending any money unless you are committed to like being the publisher of your book yeah yeah definitely all of the like the full service things are like that's where it gets into like scammy territory like it's one oh, thing yeah. to, you know, it's hire so someone to, you know, copy edit your book like off of like Upwork or something like that. But it's different to go to, yeah, like yeah. A, a publisher where they're like, oh, yes, if you give us $10,000, we'll do yeah. all of the things for your book. That's yeah, you're essentially you're hiring a project manager and you're trusting their uh, contracts. And yeah. you don't necessarily like they're going to use their editor, their designer, their publicist, their marketing practice, and you don't have any say and what those are and you can probably honestly get a better deal yeah just going on upwork or you know doing a little bit more work but managing your own project so i would say that would be a smarter way to go um maybe check out that company the author services company with full service take the meeting like find out what they do and then make notes and figure out how to do them all yourself cheaper and better that's my advice to the budding self-published author or you know like if you if you're curious about the traditional publishing route, like that's super instructive as well. Um, I do think that tends to be a better deal for authors. Like you'll do less work for whatever money you earn. You might not earn money doing either thing though, and you will not lose money working with a traditional publisher. You can lose a lot of money publishing yourself. So one thing traditional publishers provide is we take the financial risk. And I feel like that's kind of the biggest service of all because you can lose money in publishing. Yeah, for sure. And I think that goes to to my thought of like one of the biggest mistakes first time authors make is the idea that they're going to make a significant amount of money doing it. Like this is not going to pay your mortgage this year. Sorry, friends. If you don't lose money, you are ahead of most self-published authors. It's true. Like, and honestly, even, even traditional publishing, I'll say like with, with the shred girls, like with any advance money I got, like it was in, pretty much instantly spent on, you know, sending books and t-shirts to, you know, friends and girls and like all that kind of stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I would say, yeah, as a whole, I've probably like lost more money than I've made over the years with (laughs) publishing, like from like from small press to like more traditional, like the big ones to self-published. Like I, it is not a, it is not a major moneymaker. And like, I want it to be, and I believe it can be, um, and I think like this is part of what's interesting to me about like something like microcosm. And I want to hear your take on this. So part of my thing with Strong Girl Publishing is that like 
getting all young women athletes as authors. To me, that's a great marketing thing because they can all market for each other and be talking about each other's books. And it's all sort of the same niche. So they're all able to kind of like help promote each other's stuff. So I imagine with microcosm, that's actually like a huge part of it is you have this microcosm of very niche people who are all like, then you have like five people that are in this niche and then they can all sort of help promote each other. So I think it's almost like creating author pods is probably one of the best ways that authors can help themselves, especially if they're, you know, small, small fry. I love that you're saying that because that's something that's been on my mind lately. Like as we grow, it is much less likely that our authors like meet and know each other. Like they often find each other, but I have been trying to think of ways to like more support that sort of building community amongst without calling it a mastermind like say it's a mastermind without saying it's a mastermind yeah like I was thinking I could start a discord server and then I was like is anyone really gonna like like they should be able to complain about us in privacy if they want to you know (laughs) like there is something really powerful though about that like connection like to me that's Mm -hmm. one of the big things that I'm really excited about is and I've been thinking about that too I'm like okay we'll have like monthly zooms for the authors where they can all you know, pr- like be talking to each other and like going through like race schedules and what's, what's, gum- you know, what's coming up for them. And every, like most authors, I'm going to try to like make sure they get each other's books. So we have a planner out and I'm meeting one of our authors that's coming out in the October. I'm seeing her tomorrow. So she's going to get a copy of the planner that just came out so she can talk about it. And I love that. It's a good kind of flywheel effect, hopefully. I mean, I don't know if it's actually going to work. We'll find out in a few years if I'm completely broke or not, but I think, say. I think that's super smart because yeah you have you had you have like a very specific niche and your authors are all going to have something in common which I can't say of our authors at all um <laughs> but it makes I think that makes a ton of sense and is very smart well and and I mean like fun. even talking about like the you know uh the women or the sorry punk punk and riot books right like, those like the co-promotions on that actually could be really cool and like having those... than having them fight each other that's for sure exactly yeah right so there's there's something and i think that's actually i literally as we were talking just wrote down comparison question mark um how as authors like it really can feel like you're you're in competition with these other other authors that are in your niche but i i do think like books are cheap it's not like bikes where if you buy a trek you can't buy a specialized because you've spent right. six thousand dollars on that bike like, no, everybody which, wants both books. Yeah, you can get especially both if books. they can get a dollar off. Exactly. So I think, like, let's let's just kind of wrap on like rising tide lifts all ships here. Like, if if an author in your genre or your niche is doing well, that's fantastic news for you. I know, right? Yeah, and we like one way we do that is we bundle our books together. So like we have a lot of super packs, and we often use these as a way to sort of let more better selling books help lesser selling books out so you know we're like these are both amazing books for whatever reason this one has been selling better so let's try to pair it with this other book and see if we can kind of bring it along because we think these readers will really want them both and we'll like you know discount it a little bit and mm-hmm. make a nice graphic and that that's actually been yeah one of our best sort of direct to consumer sales drivers really smart really smart Okay, how can an author help with this process? Like, how can an author actually help market themselves? Because, like, spoiler mm-hmm. alert, publishers not as good as mar- like at marketing as the <clears throat> author themselves. So, personal example here. So, we have we're at Canadian Cycling Cycl- or Mountain Bike Nationals uh, in Nova Scotia. My first author is a Nova Scotia mountain biker. Uh, her poetry book's coming out in October. I emailed a few local news channels. Uh, about it you know send a little press release like she's racing she has a book coming out crickets her mom who is local and like very involved in the art scene emails like you know the ctv or cbc which is like canada's pbs and global news and whatever and suddenly like yesterday she's on cbc she's on the like she's on the tv talking about the book which is like so yeah so i'm like oh right yeah okay it turns out authors are actually much better at marketing than uh than I'm gonna be so it's true I mean I feel like this is another one where it's like all authors are different like some authors are like this one they have their whole network activated they will hustle um Mm -hmm. they know what to do and they are on it and like we just kind of try to get out of their way and 
they tell us where to send books and we send them out for review. And, you know, other authors are like, need are excited to do that, but don't know how, and they need coached through it. Other authors are just like, eh, I don't know. Eh. Um, the only ones that like, we really have trouble working with are people who are like, send me on tour, set me up with interviews. And we're like, mm, that doesn't really work that way. <laughs> like it used to work that way. This is like the, you know, and that used to be a really good way to sell books. And it was a good investment for publishers to make. And now it doesn't really like, honestly, like doing an event at a bookstore since the pandemic, even before the pandemic, it was starting to fade. Like you're lucky to sell four books and 20 people come. And yeah. this doesn't pencil out for the bookseller, for the author or for us, unless the author is like really excited to do it and like really excited to build a network and promote it. And there's kind of no amount of shouting about it on social media or buying Facebook ads or whatever that we can do that can replicate that. Yeah. Um, so we put our energy elsewhere. Like most of the marketing we do honestly has to do with like making sure that the book's data is really in good shape. And that we're interfacing with the industry because most of our sales are to stores. So we're just, right. most of our marketing work is behind the scenes, making sure the stores can get them. But yeah, the best thing an author can do is honestly just be like open and communicative with the publisher. Like if we like answer, answer the phone and answer the email, like if we are like, Hey, we have this opportunity for you respond immediately. Like, oh you gosh, know, yes freak out for an hour and then respond, but don't wait two weeks and then be like, is it too late? Um, like, cause that's like where half the good stuff comes from. It's just from like people finding the book and loving it and coming to you. Um, if you are motivated to reach out, like be communicative with your publisher about what you do and don't want to do and what you are doing so that you can coordinate your efforts. When you have an event, tell your publisher when you're in the media, tell your publisher as far in advance as you can, because one thing we can do is we can get your book into bookstores ahead of that event, but only if we know. And yep. Yep. yeah, <laughs> so those, you know, it, it all seems really basic, but like you don't actually have to go and create a TikTok account and get a million followers and like learn to do book publicity and talk on TV and get. Oh, so I shouldn't pay for that online course that's going to help me become <laughs> a uh, guru at book publishing or book promotion. Um, I mean, if you want to learn, if you want to learn that skill set, there are ways to learn that skill set. It's a good skill set to have, but you don't have to do any of them like really basic requirements are more important than the fancy requirements <laughs> for sure for sure but yeah but like again you know like knowing your audience and building authentic relationships with them you know is like it's you if you're coming if you're like oh I wrote a book about world war ii history I'm gonna go post on a bunch of world war ii history forums about it you're gonna get marked as spam so fast but if you're already a member of those forums and you've been talking about how you're writing a book people are gonna be so excited to hear about it and buy your book so like that's what I'm talking about, you know? Oh, man. Now I got to get back on the bad poetry forums that I was on when I was 15. <laughs> this is not going to go well. That's the best cool. way to sell you bad poetry. That actually is how I sold my my first zine, so. Nice. Oh, nice work. Yeah, shout out to like zenith.net or whatever the heck it was back then. Oof. Look at you, young mogul. Yeah, yeah. Entrepreneurial <laughs> from 16. Um, okay, so you know, you've, you've made this shift into more of like the publishing space. You're still doing all these anthologies. What's, what's the daily life look like here? How do you balance the, the two? How do you keep all of the different projects organized, especially because you always like microcosm would have so many different books in so many different <clears throat> areas on the go at all different times. I know. Well, we have amazing software that um, has been in development since 2001. It's ongoing. I manage developing it now. And that is like our secret sauce. Nice. Um, and we're actually developing software for publishers. We're calling it Working Lit and it's in beta right now. So if any publishers like yourself want to try it out. It, yeah. All right. We'll talk. Yes, we'll talk. please. Because like databasing, you know, the importance of all that data and it also tracks sales and expenses. So you can do your taxes very easily and it does royalties. Um Oh, amazing. Mm -hmm. It's I'm really proud of it. It's a lot harder to run a technology company than we expected, but we built we built a thing and people are using it. It's really that's cool. incredible. And OK, so I love that because that's that's I mean, for anyone listening, whether or not you're a writer or a publisher or whatever, like it's that like that thing of like, OK, we solve this problem for ourselves. Can this be useful to other people? Exactly. Like, exactly. Amazing. And it's like, we don't want to make a lot of money doing this, which I think is maybe holding us back in the tech 
world. We I'm just like want- you're in the tech space. You need to make a lot of money. That's we how it works. Wanna, we want to fix our industry. You know, like publishing software is so bad. Like we've worked with so many distributors where like we put in data and it comes out as something else or like we can't find the report we need. And we're just like, okay, we have something that works and we just, and like, because we do, that's what enabled us to grow and survive through so many downturns. And we want other publishers to have that too. So yeah, that's super (laughs) cool. All right. I'm making a note to talk to you about that later, Molly. Yes. Yeah. And I was going to say, how do you carve out time to write? But it sounded like the answer when we got on this call was you get up super freaking early. Yeah, I usually start my work day around 4 or 5 a.m. And then I'm done by early afternoon. And then I go have a romantic lunch date. And then I come home and I usually don't write or I avoid writing or I procrastinate from writing. (laughs) Those are my three major uh, writing tasks. Yep. Yep. I know that list very well. Check that one (laughs) off most days. And then by doing that for years and years, I somehow have written some books and edited some other books and um, probably will somehow manage to write more in the future. Yeah, I don't know how it happens. I literally have no idea. I think it happens in between commercial breaks. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask about writer's block, but it sounds like you really have that to-do list figured out with that. Oh, yeah. I, I have all the flavors of writer's block. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say I'm an expert at having writer's block. Yeah, I'm a very avoidant style of writer's block. <laughs> yes. And I think this is the the good the good thing and bad thing about being in a space like uh, like both of us are where it's like okay, I don't want to write. There's a billion other things I could be doing instead or like much more yeah. like mundane writing tasks that like let me mm-hmm. avoid the actual like real writing that I need to do. So, yeah. I feel like that's how I avoid writer's block. I'm just like, okay, well, I'll just go tick off 18 other things on the to-do list and avoid the really important thing of writing. Yeah, I don't know how I've ever written a longer work. Like editing volumes of short stories is so great and writing short stories is great because they are like, you can be like, I'm going to do one every other day until they're done. But with, yeah, a book, I always really, a longer book, I always really struggled with that time management. And I have a lot of respect for my authors who have sort of figured out the secret sauce to making it happen. I look back at every book that I've written and I'm like, how did I do that? This is weird. <laughs> I know, right? Like yeah. every time I'm asking myself the same question. And well, I can't tell you the secret here. Just yeah, no clue. No clue. Like what happens? Okay. Out of all of your books, which is your favorite that you've come out with? Oh gosh, that is so hard. Um, so books I've written or published or edited or all of the above? All of the above my favorite Ooh, I know I don't think I could answer this um there's a book that I'm working on now that it has nothing to do with bikes I'm really excited about though it's called cat party and it's an anthology that's edited by someone else Katie Hagley she wrote a book called cats I've known that was sort of a memoir and cats and then she kind of had a similar experience where so many people told her their cat stories that she was like started publishing zines collecting them and now she's doing the book it's called cat party and it's got like a hundred different submissions maybe 50 um like stories poems art comics and it's all people's like heartfelt stories oh. about cats in their lives and it's so wonderful there's some famous people's cats in it um there's a lot of uh, it's just really touching and I'm really excited about it I don't I kind of have a feeling it's not going to be like a blockbuster for us but the right people will find it year after year and really I think be moved by it I love that that's so cute I don't even like cats but I'm excited about it I know I don't even have a cat but you got you see this is the this is the thing about niches you don't have to be in the niche to want to read the book mm-hmm. and okay coming back to cycling is there anything happening in the cycling world that has you excited I mean yeah, or yeah. furious given the like last yeah can I swear yeah like (laughs) Like, fuck the UCI right yeah like let's just put that front and center um right like what the hell I don't know man it sounds like one like one PR disaster after another like at minimum like how how bad are you at like reading the room I know right it's like trans women are women and there's so I don't know like I feel like the bigger issue I mean that's a big issue this prejudice this like 
unwelcomingness, this like weird exclusionary gatekeepingness is one issue. But the bigger issue I feel like is like, why, I don't know. And you can tell me if I'm wrong. This is a theory I have. It might not be scientific, but when you look at like men's cycling and women's cycling, so-called, like, yeah, the men are going faster, but look at how many more resources the men have. Would the women go that fast too if they had that many resources? I wonder. I kind of think they might. I think there maybe should be no difference. It's a and very, no difference. very interesting question. And yeah, There's I think- a spicy take for your audience. We're, and we're seeing more and more of that, right? Like as, <clears throat> as women's cycling is getting bigger, we are seeing you know more and more resources in women's cycling. And guess what? The speeds are coming up. Shocker. What do you know? Like, what if the division wasn't gender, which is so arbitrary anyway, but what if it was like years of experience or like, I don't know, cute team names, like an ultimate Frisbee or something? It is it, like, honestly, the mixed team is even kind of an interesting concept. So I think, I think we're going to have to see more of that in coming years. Like, especially as, I mean, even if you read the UC guys thing, it is, um, it's based on, you know, before or like after puberty is sort of like the the thing which to me is like okay so we have very blurry lines that even the UCI doesn't really have a definition for here so we're gonna have to figure out a a different situation in coming years like it's I mean yeah it's like they divided it between rich people and poor people and then yeah. they were oh tra- by the way trans women who are the most broke people of all you get to race with the, only the super rich people yeah. And like, let's be clear, cycling already divided the rich people and the poor people when it came to racing. Like, I know, I know. That's a bad, that's a bad, that's not a perfect analogy. I will say. <laughs> Somewhere between bad and not perfect. It's <laughs> a, it's a, yeah, it's a very straight. I'm, I'm personally just so upset. And I, I swear we'll get back to books in two seconds here. I'm personally just so mad that they decided to announce that the week before the Tour de France Femmes. Because I'm like, okay, you finally had this like thing that had everyone really excited about women's racing and like caring about women's racing. And now we're just going to like take a dump on that and like, ma- you know, like get all of these people like super mad on both sides and kind of completely detract from the fact that we finally had this big race that was very exciting and good for the sport. Now yeah. we're just going to like backtrack it and just be really bad for the sport again. It's like they don't have the sport's best interest in mind. I don't know. Or women's best interest in mind. Shocker. Yeah, it is almost like that. Mm. Hmm. Well, oh, I yeah. guess we won't reform all of bike racing in this one podcast, but we can try. We can try. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <the> revolution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, before I let you go uh, on the note of revolutions, uh, tell everyone where they can find all of your books, all of your better worlds for cycling, a science fiction here, because I think we all really, really need that right now. (laughs) Yay. Thanks for asking. Um, If you go to microcosm.pub, you can find all of our books and so many more thousands of books. And if you go to microcosm.pub slash bikes in space, you'll find the feminist bicycle science fiction you're looking for. Excellent. And your, your podcast is a people's guide to publishing, I believe. Yeah, The People's Guide to Publishing. Um, and then the book is also called A People's Guide to Publishing that Joe wrote that tells Excellent you everything resource. you know, and then some. We're working on a second edition to come out in the next couple of years. So if you have any feedback, if you're Ooh. like, I wish I covered that, let us know. That is very, that's very exciting. Because I mean, it's still actually very much up to date, but I think, what was it, like 2017 that it came out? Yeah. I'm trying to yeah. remember. And it was written to age well, but you know, there's and it does, I would say, but I mean the the industry just changes so fast and like there's, I think so it was much... still the big five when that book came out. Now it's the big yeah, four. Exactly. So so I think I'd say ninety-five percent of it is like still completely accurate and like perfect. Then there's like five percent that's it's not even outdated where it's like painful, but it is like, okay, there are new softwares online and like these these margins might have changed slightly, like but it's it's pretty much excellent oh my gosh ellie thank you so much for hanging out with me here this has been so much fun like i say i feel like i've known you for a billion years but it's so good actually meeting you likewise likewise thanks for inviting me on um it was a lot of fun to talk with you of course yeah and we will definitely definitely keep in touch well good luck with uh breaking up the boys club and publishing and in bicycling get those Get those girls on bikes. Yes. 
Thanks so much for tuning into that episode. Oh my gosh, I got so much out of that. I mean, obviously for me, this is a very, very special episode because I'm working on this small publishing company, Strong Girl Publishing, uh, but also because I am an author, um, you know, and I'm constantly getting asked by people about how to, you know, put a book out in the world. So I'm glad we were able to kind of answer some of those questions and hopefully give people a little bit of behind the scenes intel about what it looks like to, uh, you know, write a book, publish a book, all of that fun stuff. Uh, so definitely keep the questions coming. Let me know over on Instagram at business.of.fitness or uh, just find me at Molly J. Herbert. Let me know what you want to hear about. Let me know what, you know, what areas of business you're excited about, whether it's you need some help with PR and marketing or you really want to get into the nitty gritty of, you know, how to, how to work with different coaching clients. I definitely want to make sure that we're hitting all of the really niche topics that are part of the business of this fitness industry that we're in. So with that, definitely get in touch and I will see you in two weeks. Thanks for tuning in.